I had flashbacks um, as we were singing that last song, not long after I was baptized as a, a young boy, young man, several years ago, uh, went on a Bible study with one of our elders, his name was Brownie Knowles, I don't know if that was his birth name or a nickname, but everyone called him Brownie. And uh, we showed the Jewel Miller film strip to, uh, to a couple. And I was the silent partner. Um, when the tape set, when the tape had a boop, then I turned the film strip. And the, uh, we started the cassette, and it began with the song, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. I have to call my mother this afternoon, <laughs> get on to her for passing that gene down to me. Mm. Tell me the story of Jesus, write on my heart every word. Mm. That's good stuff. Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 11. Um, that's going to be our text this morning. Derek, thank you for reading from Psalm 118. Um, this is a very familiar passage, or I hope it is. Uh, the problem with familiar passages is that we feel that we, we know. We already know what it says. We, we've read it before, and so we really don't, uh, we really don't investigate. We don't really dig into the text because we know we know what it says. We've read it many, many times. Another difficulty lies with your teacher. Uh, it becomes a problem of creativity. Um, your teacher thinks maybe that he has to use imagination to make the text come alive, or maybe even exaggeration which is almost always very dangerous uh, when we come to the text. For example, there will be no doubt preachers that will stand up this morning and say, we're going to look at our text, and this morning I want us to try to get into the mind of the donkey. What would it have been like to have been the donkey? What would the donkey have thought? What might have been his thoughts as Jesus rode on his back into Jerusalem. And for anyone who might approach it that way, we might find ourselves to be more like the donkey than we would want to admit. The heading of our text, at least in the NIV, says the triumphal entry. As we read today, I, I find it not really so triumphant. If we get down to verse 11, at the end of our, our text this morning, it says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Doesn't really sound so triumphant, does it? Many sermons on 
Palm Sunday have focused on how fickle the crowd was. At one point, we find them shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then very shortly thereafter, we find them shouting, Crucify, Crucify. I'm not really sure that we can substantiate those claims from our text. It seems to me that those are two very different crowds of people. The crowds that have followed and are are walking, they're throwing the palm branches and they're shouting Hosanna versus the crowd that he comes upon when he spends the next couple of days in Jerusalem, those religious leaders that are opposed to him and are shouting crucify. Two different crowds, I think, completely. You know, in real estate, they say that there are only three things that matter. Three things that are really important in real estate. Location, 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 right? The same is true in Bible study. When when we come to the Bible, there are really only three things that are important. Context, context, context. It's so easy to come to a passage like Palm Sunday and to just look at those verses and forget everything that came before or, or what comes after. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 32. It says they were, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. It says they were astonished or, or, or they were bewildered. They didn't really, really understand what was going on. And the overwhelming feeling by many of maybe possibly those pilgrims who were making their way up to Jerusalem for the, for the festival of, of the Passover, the overwhelming feeling that they were feeling were, was fear. They were afraid. Maybe because of what Jesus goes on to say. Look at what he says. Again, he took the 12 aside, and he told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will arise. A very clear prediction as to what would take place. So then how James and John could then ask what they do in verse 35 and and the verses following is just mind-boggling. It just is amazing. They come to the teacher and they say, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Jesus just gets through telling them. He pulls pulls the 12 aside and he says, This is what's going to happen. We're on our way to Jerusalem. And these are are the the things that are going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They're going to sentence me to death. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. They're going to spit on me. They're going to mock me. And eventually they're going to kill me. Three days later, I'm going to rise. And they say, okay, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we want, whatever we ask of you. And he says, well, what is that? Well, 
we want to sit at your right hand and your left hand when you come into your kingdom. What are they thinking? They're thinking that Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem and he's going to be an earthly king. And they want the inside track. They want to be on the cabinet. They want to be prominent cabinet members, one to sit at the right, one to sit at the left. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't, you don't know what you're asking. Oh, we know. And he says, well, will you be able to drink the cup that I am going to drink? You betcha. Yes, we can. And Jesus says, you don't have a clue. You have, a, you have no clue. But you will drink the cup that I'm going to drink. They didn't realize what he was saying. But he says, I don't want you to be like the Gentiles. What you're asking for me is to have a prominent seat in my kingdom, in, a, in an earthly kingdom. And he says, I don't want you to be like the Gentiles who, who lord it over the people. They exercise authority. They kind of put their thumb on the people and they use their position of power to lord it over the people. I don't want you to be like that. That's not the way it's going to be in my kingdom. Look at verse 43. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. <coughs> Excuse me. So then into Jericho they go. Bartimaeus, a blind man, he's begging on the roadside. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stops, he calls out to them, he heals him. Go, he says, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. So you have the clear prediction about what's going to happen. <coughs> Excuse me. Hope you all are praying for my throat. My, I'm still struggling. You have the, the clear prediction about what's going to happen. Then you have this vital instruction as to how they are supposed to live. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And then you have this transformation in the life of a man named Bartimaeus. And then fast forward, if you will, to chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, verse 15. This kind of gives us a little context on the back end of our text this morning. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house would be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priest and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. 
This is so, so important, the context here, because many, I think, will preach this morning about a sweet, a kind, a peaceful, a loving Jesus who rides into Jerusalem, and he is all of that. He's all of that and more. But they ignore the fact that within 24 hours of entering Jerusalem, he goes to the temple and he just clears the place out. We cannot have a Christ of our own making, is what I'm saying to you this morning. The same Jesus who rides in peacefully on a donkey now kicks people out of the temple. And surely people are thinking, who, the, who does this guy think he is? Who does he think he is coming in here and doing that? We, we liked him better yesterday on the donkey than we like him today. Who does this guy think he is? People say that sort of thing all the time. Well, I like to think of Jesus in, in this way. Or they'll say something like, the kind of Jesus I believe in. Now listen, the only kind of Jesus that you get to believe in is the one revealed to us in Scripture. Now you can believe in any other kind of Jesus, but he's not the same Jesus. He's got to be the Jesus revealed to us in Scripture. And that's the only Jesus, the only true Jesus that we want to look at and we want to think about and to believe in. It's so important to let the Bible interpret itself so that we do not end up with a Jesus who is made in our image. So context. Context is very important. Let's look at our text this morning in Mark chapter 11. Jesus tells them that he's going to be riding into Jerusalem. We're going to ride into Jerusalem. And I can almost hear the disciples say, finally. You know, that we walk everywhere we go. We're always walking. But now Jesus is going to be riding into Jerusalem. Finally, a triumphant entry. He's going to prove to himself, kind of like the prophet Zechariah talked about, that he would come riding in humbly on a donkey, your king. And so now he's going to show himself to be the king, finally. And then Jesus tells them, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany, uh, Bethany is a couple of miles away from Jerusalem, much more known to us than Bethpage. Bethpage is just a little hamlet somewhere in between Bethany on the way to Jerusalem. They're at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever written. Untie it and bring it to me. Bring it to me here. He's going to ride into Jerusalem, not on a, a stallion, not in a chariot pulled by a fine Arabian horse, but he's going to ride in on a, a donkey. That's, that's where he's going to make his entrance. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him the Lord needs it, and he will send it back shortly. They went out and they found a colt outside the street, tied at a doorway. 
And as they untied it, some people standing there asked, Why are you, what are you doing untying that coat? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people, the people let them go. In John chapter 12, we see the same story unfolding, and it tells us that they could not understand all of this. But it was only later, after Jesus was glorified, that they, that they understood what was going on. They, they, they could not comprehend what was unfolding before their very eyes. A young donkey, it says, never before ridden. Does that seem kind of risky to you? <laughs> a little bit? I don't know a whole lot about farm animals, but I know that, that donkeys are supposed to be pretty stubborn at times. And here you have Jesus riding on a colt, a young foal of a donkey that's never been ridden before. Seems like there might be some troubles, but Jesus simply sat on it. It seemed perfectly normal to Jesus. Fairest Lord Jesus, ruler of all nature, O thou of God and man, the Son, Christ, the creator of the universe, the Lord of all creation, even the winds and the waves obey him. So it was nothing for him to throw his leg over the colt, a donkey that had never been written ridden, and proceed towards his destiny in Jerusalem. Verse 8, verse 7, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Turn over to Psalm 118. Derek read for us this morning. Psalm 118. I want you to see the context. What is it that these people are shouting? This is the last of the Hallel Psalms. Uh, these were recited at all of the main festivals as people would go up to Jerusalem. As Brent was telling us, those Psalms of Ascent, uh, Jerusalem was built up on a, on a hill, so from wherever you approached Jerusalem, you were walking upward. You were, you were walking up the hill. So they, they would sing these Psalms of Ascent as they were Ascending up to Jerusalem. Psalm 118 is the last in a section of psalms that they call the Hallel Psalms. When we say the word hallelujah, hallelujah, what we're saying literally is praise to Yahweh or praise to Jehovah. Hallel is, is the word for praise. So that is a, a psalm of praise, and this was the last one in their section. The presenter, he would, he would shout out 
the first part, and then all of those responders, the reciters, would echo and, and say the, the second part of the psalm, much like we do when we have a responsive reading. So this is what they were doing here with Psalm 118. Look at verse 22. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You remember in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, Peter, the apostle, he tells them that they are a, the, the, the capstone. Jesus has become this cornerstone that has caused men to stumble. He says, you are being built in. You are living stones being built into a holy temple. Do you remember that passage? And then he says, but you are a chosen priesthood, a holy nation, a royal people, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He says, once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It comes from Psalm, 22, uh, Psalm 118 here, beginning of verse 22. Look at verse 24. Uh, we know this psalm better than we, we think we do. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Every day is, is worthy of rejoicing in it. Now look at verse 25. O oh Lord, save us. O oh Lord, grant us success. What they're saying there is, Hosanna, Hosanna. Lord, save us. Grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. This is what they chanted. This is what they were chanting in Mark chapter 11. But you'll notice there in verse 10, they add something here that's not found in Psalm 118. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That's not in Psalm 118. Where'd they get that from? Well, it comes from a whole host of, uh, of notions, not the least of which was the idea that the Messiah was going to be an earthly king, that there was going to be some national liberation, throwing off the yoke of the Romans, restoring Israel to this national prominence. You remember when he healed Bartimaeus just a few verses ago? What was it, what was it that Bartimaeus cried out? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So they're recognizing Jesus, this prophet from Nazareth, who may be this son of David, the new Messiah that's going to, to throw off this yoke. He's going to be an earthly king, totally missing the potential of spiritual redemption. Much like any crowd, they were, they were caught up in the moment, caught up in the moment, caught up and confused. You can almost see, see it unfolding as Jesus climbed on to this donkey, this young donkey that had never been written, ridden, the Lord of all creation, riding on a donkey. 
and people are, are seeing this. Maybe somebody's saying, this kind of reminds me of Zechariah, what the prophet had said. And, and they began to cry out, Hosanna. And they had cut these palm branches and, and, and they were throwing them in the, in the path and some were laying their cloaks down. And you can almost see people saying, what's going on here? What's going on? And they, and they see it unfolding, and they just began to join in. We could be going up to the market. We could be buying our groceries, but, but, but let's join into this, to this crowd, this singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're confused, much like any crowd would be today, much like if I just went out and polled all of you today. What is your thought about Jesus? What is God up to? What is God doing in your life? I'm sure we'd have a, a wide array, a, array of, of, of things that people might say. Well, I don't know if God's doing anything. Confusion. But Jesus' disciples knew what was going on, right? They understood what was happening, right? No. No, they did not know. The Bible says they were astonished. Many of them were afraid. They didn't have a clue what was happening. Look at verse 11 of chapter 11. It concludes the scene for us. Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he went to the temple. This is after all the crowd, all the pomp, all the ceremony, he goes to the temple, he looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Really triumphant, isn't it? <laughs> not really, not at all. It, it, it almost seems anticlimactic, doesn't it? Jesus says, guys, you know, it's, it's really too late for anything else. Let's, let's just go home. What is going on in verse 11? What is Jesus doing? I would submit to you this morning that he is surveying. He's looking around, and he's surveying the scene of the upcoming battle. the battle on which the prince of glory will die. He woke up that morning, what we call Palm Sunday, he woke up that morning knowing that he was one day closer to all the agony and the pain and the humiliation of the cross, the suffering servant of God. And he gets on this donkey, the king of the universe, and he makes his way to Jerusalem through all the pomp, through all the crowds, through all the noise, and he dismounts the donkey and he stands and he views the scene. He is looking across the battle of the ages. Jesus is about to wage war for the hearts and the lives and the souls of men and women in this congregation this morning. 
He was about to wage war for the, the souls and the lives and the hearts of every man and every woman who has ever walked the, plate, the face of this earth or whoever will walk on this planet. He's about to wage war for your soul's eternal destiny so that you and I could understand what's being cried out in Psalm 118. Oh, Lord, save us. Oh, God, save us. Save us from this corrupt and wicked generation. Save us from our own evil and wicked desires and lusts. God, grant us the deepest longing of our hearts and our souls to give us meaning, to give us forgiveness. Freedom from guilt. Freedom from shame. Jesus surveyed the scene. I think that's what that day was about. We have to ask the question, what does that mean and why does any of that matter? <laughs> what does it mean? Why does any of that even matter? Lord willing, we'll try to answer some of those questions next week. Jesus rode into Jerusalem. It's almost comical to me. The king of kings. He rode in on a donkey as a king. And he was a king. They just didn't recognize it. They didn't know he was the king of kings. The lord of lords. That there was no one else above him. No one else higher they didn't know. They didn't understand. And so the question that I have for you, that I have for me, is he your king? Have you made him the Lord of your life? I, I, maybe that's a misnomer. Jesus is your king, whether you've made him your king or not. <laughs> Did you know that? That sounded weird when I heard that in my ears. Have you made Jesus your king? He's your king whether you want him to be or not. But will you submit to him as your king? That's the better question. Have you submitted to your king and your Lord? That's really the only question that needs answering. Everything else pales in comparison. He was their king, but they, they didn't even know it. They didn't recognize it as such. What a blessing it is for us this morning to recognize and to know that he is king and that there is no other name under heaven given by men by which we must be saved except the name of Jesus. Dare we ever make him into our own image. That, I think the church has become so irrelevant in our society because we have spent so much time trying to be relevant 
to our society. Did y'all hear what that, what I said? Is there any wisdom in that? We have become so irrelevant to our world because we spent so much time trying to be relevant. Jesus has never been relevant to his world. He's countercultural. He goes against the grain. That's why they killed him. That's why they put him on a cross, because he flew in the face of everything that they wanted. And that's our society. That's what we look around. That's our world today. Jesus will never be relevant to a culture. He flies in the face of culture. And he says, if you will turn to me, I'll give you life. What, what you're pursuing now is not life. It only brings death. But if you'll submit to me as king, I'll give you life eternal. Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. Jesus would love to take you by the hand this morning and lead you into a relationship with him. And ultimately, by having that relationship, take you home with him.